Hey guys, this is Tyler with the Grassroots Living Soil Podcast. Um, today, I'm really happy to bring on the soil doctor here today. Uh, Bryant is uh, one I've been following for a long time. And um, recently, he's posted a couple of things on Instagram that really um, alerted me, you know, about uh, foliar spraying and, you know, toxicities of the plant and overdoing things. And there's there's just so many things that just brought in so many questions that I felt like I was like, this would be such a great time to bring this man on and allow him to just open up and, um, you know, really let us know um, his opinion on how we should be doing things from his source of information, which just seems to be all data driven. So um, I'd like to just uh, thank Bryant for coming on today. And, um, you know, welcome to the Grassroots Podcast. If you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you today. I am a certified crop advisor through the American Association of Agronomy. So I'm, um, I was trained and I passed the test uh, in numerous facets of crop management, but I specifically focus on nutrient management and primarily in organic systems. So I uh, help growers in multiple crop segments, but primarily cannabis, optimize their nutrition, both with pre-plant soil amendments and mid-season applications. And I do that uh, as much as possible through soil testing, tissue testing, irrigation water testing. As you said, I'm, I'm um, mostly focused on the data and combining data with grower observations and trying to match up what growers are seeing and experiencing with the laboratory reports that are telling us what's happening on the molecular level and um, really on the elemental chemistry level. I'll add that the, the final thing that I do is I really try to think through the context of an operation because um, it's not just about soil chemistry, understanding the physical characteristics and having a little bit better grasp on um, certain cultural practices that may be influencing the soil biology also matters a lot. So I'm, I'm trying to encapsulate all of those principles to um, really just help growers increase yield and improve crop quality. Great, great. And um, I've been following you on Instagram for quite a while now, and it's it's, it's super awesome to see that you're boosting in, in followers and stuff and have over 17,000 followers. So uh, what's your what's your Instagram right now? Uh, the, my Instagram handle is soil underscore doctor. Soil and, underscore um, doctor. I really am an active in the off season. I like to just, I try to really hammer into new learning and reflect on the season and go back and look at all people I've worked with. And, and that's when I like to share the most. So you'll see me kind of disappear for months on end. And that's just because the season gets so busy. It's hard for me to post. Great, great. And I, I just wanted to go cover that and go over that in the beginning of our podcast here, because I know all of my followers and all everybody listening to this is going to be Instagram based and everything like that. So I just wanted to give them a chance to get out there and uh, get to your content that I found so, so helpful to myself um, as, as fast as physically possible. Um, and you also have a website too. I went onto your website and check that out, man. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Soil, soil doctor consulting.com is the website. So, and uh, uh, I also want to mention that this, this year I launched a, an online course called become a cannabis soil expert, where I go really, really deep into um, cannabis soil and crop nutrition and everything I've learned over the last several years working with hundreds of growers. And so that's on my website. People can check that out as well. 
Perfect. I saw that link on there. That is awesome. And I saw that we can email you um, our Logan Labs reports, our soil reports, um, probably any kind of data that we're getting from any part of the field and bring it, deliver it to you and, and help us summarize that kind of stuff, I'm assuming. Yeah. So on my website, you can order um, recommendations. So if you have a soil test already from Logan Labs, it's a $40 recommendation. If you don't have the soil test, you can order the test and the recommendation all in one fell swoop. Um, same with compost tests, irrigation water tests, tissue tests. You can order all of those tests and recommendations on my site. Great, great. So if you can, um, I think a, a really interesting thing for people to see is like if you walk into a garden or a grow, a greenhouse, an acreage and the first thing, what are going to be some of the first things that you want to evaluate and, and, and try to do to help, the, help those people? Great. So yeah, the, I, I think that from a, a high level, um, aside from just getting to know the grower and hearing some baseline information about their operation and how they, they run things, I go through a, what I call a photosynthesis checklist in my head. So I, the, the, you know, immediately I'm thinking about, um, the air. So the air temperature and the humidity, the light intensity, you know, if it's, if it's a sun grown crop or if it's a, a, a light grown crop, if it's indoor, outdoor, um, soil nutrition. So I'll look at plants for um, just an initial scan of the plants. And that's mostly an intuitive feel of if they're healthy or not. But then I also look at if I'm, if I see chlorosis or necrosis, um, if the, how the leaves, the morphology of the leaves is, is looking. A lot of that is somewhat cultivar dependent, but um, there are certain uh, tests I'll do where I'll pull a leaf and bend it and see if the, the, um, the, the stem snaps essentially the petiole snaps. Um, but overall I'm, I'm thinking about the primary inputs to photosynthesis. So, um, if they're using CO2, that's another big thing. Um, the soil depth and the soil volume per plant. And then most importantly, the, probably the biggest thing I look at initially is irrigation. So how are the plants getting water? I'll put my finger in the soil and actually feel the soil moisture. Um, if it's, I'll look if it's a blue mat system, if it's a drip irrigation system, if they hand water. To me, irrigation technique is is critically important to understand because everything sort of follows from that. Um, so yeah, those are just kind of the initial variables because that's ultimately what uh, is is needed for photosynthesis. Great, great. And yeah, irrigation, I always try to harp on people, let them know that, you know, water is your biggest nutrient and the biggest factor of affecting your nutrients and, and its uptake and everything to the plant. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I'll, I'll ask usually is where the water is coming from, because if it's yeah. well water or municipal water, I mean, it totally changes the chemistry. And um, as you mentioned, that's what the plant roots are seeing more than anything else. So um, yeah, I'd say that. And then uh, cycle length, I think a lot about uh, how long the plants are in the soil before they're flipped into flower, if it's an indoor crop or light depth. And um, that compared to the soil volume, because, you know, there's only so much uh, nutrition that you can kind of work into a living soil system um, without creating issues. So I think soil volume really matters unless, unless it's a salt grow. And in that case, you can go quite a bit smaller. Great, great. Um, one post that 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 just really got my mind just reeling, and I really hope that you can help me put um, 
science behind my thoughts and tell me what's going on there. And, and um, over the years, I've learned a lot from Eric Branstad and the Greenhouse Advisory Group and him talking about airflow and, and, and keeping things, um, you know, not amplifying things, not making things worse, not, not in, antagonizing things, you know, and having that, cl- that climate and that crop just right and how you were talking about um, airflow over a tomato plant and a study that you had found and, and obviously, you know, a perfect environment and the airflow over that. And, and that struck me, you know, um, to other knowledge that I found out about um, pest interaction with the plant and how, let's say we're, if we're in a greenhouse and it's almost like a sealed environment and maybe we're um, off grid, we don't have great airflow um, and it's a hot day and maybe there's possibly ammonia levels that are building up in that greenhouse that are dissipating off of that plant. And that also um, obviously is, is what those pests are attracted to or looking at because when when pests look at something, I believe it's like a sound wave that they're attracted to or a vibration that's coming off of the plant that, that is telling them to be attracted to it. Can you, can you put some science behind that, what I'm seeing and feeling with all this different information coming in? Yeah, you know, I I will say I'm not an IPM specialist, but my understanding is that insects can sense um, sense plants from in a in a number of ways, including UV. Um, they can smell. They can, and it kind of depends on the species. Um, but absolutely, I mean, if you think about any ecosystem, there are uh, secondary metabolites coming off of all ki- all kinds of plants, including cannabis, and so the profile of that. Um, of the secondary metabolites, as well as some of the off-gassing of, let's say, ammonium or or, um, or whatever compound is an indicator to, to, to insect species about what is edible. So the, um, what I've heard over and over again is that, you know, aphids have very simple digestive tracts. They can't necessarily um, digest long-chain compounds like lipids or complete proteins. And so they like plants that have these simple carbohydrates. Um, I don't know if that's uh, perfectly accurate, but the point is if you grow a healthy plant, it's going to be more uh, pest and disease resistant. So when it comes to airflow, you know, how that relates to airflow, I think about airflow more as um, when it comes to pest and disease management is more about relative humidity. Um, Mm. Because if you, if you, especially with fungal disease, um, fungal disease, again, depends on the, the, pathogen, but, um, it, it thrives at a, at a specific relative humidity and temperature. And so if you get into a zone, let's just use powdery mildew as a simple example, that's been studied extensively, especially in wine grapes in California. The, if, if the humidity and the temperature reach a certain point, um, it, it just proliferates rapidly. And so the, the advantage of airflow around plants is it is constantly lowering the relative humidity right on the, the phylosphere, right on the leaf surface. And that's what actually matters because that's where the fungus grows. So forever in my head, I've thought uh, you want airflow to just constantly be keeping the relative humidity down. Um, however, what I read in this study that, that was both intuitive, but also I had never thought about it is, is plants are, again, during photosynthesis, they are um, putting out oxygen and water. And so right, ag- right against that leaf surface, it's, it's saturating that area with, with oxygen and water. And that air movement actually pushes that oxygen out and, and replenishes the CO2, which the plant is using 
um, for photosynthesis. And so there's, there's actually multiple functions to airflow. One is the relative humidity effect. The other is just replenishing the CO2 for photosynthesis. Wow. Great. I've, I've, I haven't heard that, uh, that this science backed, uh, spoken that way. That's awesome. Um, and, um, you know, we've got a few different factors here. We've got transpiration where the leaves are almost sweating in a certain sense, you know, they're letting out their heat. And I, I want, I think a lot of people don't know that in a certain sense. And that's why you have dew or humidity and sometimes, you know, building up in greenhouses and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, I, I can also see, um, I know I don't get, you know, I'm, I'm getting a lot of data through the SAP testing that I've done and I've noticed a, a, a big um, translation into not having any nitrate levels in my sap and no pest pressure. So like two years in a row, I've, I've, you know, not had any pest pressure that I can really worry about. Um, and I've reflected just looking back at my data, looking back at everything and been like, okay, I, I don't see any nitrate levels in that sap compared to other people that, you know, have had that, that I've been able to see their, their sap tests and, and boom, it's like bugs are there. It's like an indicator or a precursor almost. Yeah. Free nitrate is known as a, as a very problematic, again, a sort of a, an insect attractant. Uh, I don't know if that's a sensing mechanism or when they take a bite and they find that free nitrate, they're attracted to it. I don't know the, the, the mechanism there, but that is a, that is fairly well known. My issue with SAP, I, I did, I've done a lot of SAP testing. A lot of growers I work with SAP tests. I do analyses. Um, and I got really into SAP testing about three or four years ago before it had become real popular in the cannabis industry um, because there's a lab in the Netherlands, Nova Crop Control, who, who's kind of the original and still sort of the gold standard for sap analysis, um, but you have to ship your leaves over across the ocean. And this mm-hmm. is before the two um, sap labs in the U.S. had started, Apical and New Age. And so I was sort of helping Apical start this sap lab or, and, and working with them a little bit. And I was getting really into it. So I did hundreds of sap tests uh, over the next couple of years. And I was trying to figure it out and kind of crack the code. Like, what does brick say? What does what sugar say? What does uh, sap pH say? And there's all of these common, uh, common things that you hear over and over again about sap pH and bricks. If bricks is high, pest pressure is low, et cetera. And, you know, to be totally honest, I, after seeing probably 500 sap tests at this point, I haven't seen a really strong correlation. Um, I've seen some of the most unhealthy crops have really high bricks. Uh, I've seen the pH all over the board. And so I've grown a little disillusioned by sap. And I think ultimately the reason is because the sap labs don't tell you what sap actually is. They don't tell you how it's, how it's extracted. Um, Mm. so that's one major issue. The second major issue is I can't, I don't think anyone can prove that foliars don't contaminate the sample. So, you know, you're low on manganese on the sap. You apply a foliar, you send it off to another test, your manganese goes up. Well, is that actually in the leaf or on the leaf surface? And I, and I cannot oh, wow. figure out how to control through that. And so I, I want to start sort of spreading that message a little more, not to be a naysayer or a, a skeptic, but because I think it's really important that we don't know what we're looking at when we're looking at sap. We don't know if it's just squeezed, you know, if it's vacuole, like what cellular constituents are in it, if it's pure xylem fluid or phloem fluid, all this really, really matters. So I think that the free nitrate thing to your point is definitely a, a, a valuable thing from SAP. And there's a number of other things that are valuable, but as a whole, I've, I've become 
um, pretty skeptical and I've moved more and more back toward tissue testing as just like a solid standard for nutrient analysis of plant tissue. Okay. And in that, that's, and comparatively to, um, in a tissue test, that's where they're like taking it and they're burning it and then analyzing it afterwards. Yeah. So they're looking at all of the nutrients in the entire leaf. Um, and that includes everything in the vacuole, everything in the cytoplasm, everything in it, the entire leaf. So it's kind of a fossil record. It's it's like everything that's been taken up by that leaf to that point in time. Um, 100% of every element. And what does it take to do a tissue test as far as submitting a sample? Is there your sample size? What does that look like? Yeah. So the other reason I like it is because it's less sensitive. SAP, it needs to get to the lab immediately Yeah. because things, you know, so you're ideally you're putting it on ice or some, somehow keeping it cool, getting it to the lab overnight or within two days. And the lab has to flip it really, really quickly. And with tissue, because they're digesting the entire leaf, it doesn't, it, it can, it can show up desiccated. It doesn't matter as long as it's not super moldy. Um, it's, it's better in that way because again, it's just a whole digest. So it doesn't matter. Cause if you think about it with SAP, you put that sample in the mail, ammonium and nitrate could be converting from one form to the other in the mail. Um, it doesn't matter with, with tissue because they're just looking at total nitrogen. So that's one difference. The other difference is, is, you don't necessarily have to do new versus old growth, which is what you do on sap analysis to look at the yeah. gradient uh, of nutrients across the plant because certain nutrients are mobile versus immobile. Um, and then the final difference is it's half the price. So if, if price is a, you know, I, I'm a fan of testing frequently, like every week taking a tissue test all the way through an entire cycle will, will teach you so much about how nutrients move throughout the plant, both in veg and then into flower. For example, you'll see calcium magnesium go up as they're moved around a little bit um, and nitrogen and phosphorus go down because they're getting all pushed into the flower. So there's some interesting trends that really help um, help people understand nutrient dynamics in cannabis. Uh, but overall, I'd say the sampling is relatively the same. The, dish, the, the final thing I'll say with tissue is that you're taking new but fully expanded leaves. So new leaves are always small. Um, I don't know. They're, they're to, so a fully expanded leaf is usually like f- several leaf nodes down. Um, yeah, middle of the plant. Being, yeah, it ends up being kind of a, a moderately aged leaf by the time you get to a fully expanded leaf. So um, that's, that's the real kicker. You just don't want to be pulling leaves from the bottom of plants. The final thing I'll say is it's much easier to identify nutrient deficiencies with tissue tests because there are there are research established targets. Um, and I, and I've just validated this over and over again. So it's crystal clear. If there's a deficiency, you're going to see it on a tissue test. SAP testing, the interpretation is a little bit more nuanced and a little more challenging. Um, and even easier is if you take healthy plants, do a tissue test, take unhealthy plants, do a tissue test and do this side by side. And then it's, it's always just crystal clear. Awesome. And with the tissue test, are they measuring those levels in a PPM? Yes. Uh, well, it depends. Percentage. So PPM and percent um, are are just a, a couple orders of magnitude off. So so with the macronutrients, it's percent. Micronutrients, it's PPM. Okay. Makes sense. Awesome. Yeah. And I would say that the big... Uh, 
big trigger reason here, um, you know, for, for a lot of our conversation was, um, when you brought up, uh, that post about foliar spraying and how you feel like people are just dramatically just way too much foliar spraying with too many things and going crazy there. So I'll let you kind of tee off on that a little bit. Yeah. You know, that was an interesting post. I, I, um, I feel it might've been a little bit misinterpreted because I'm not anti-foliar, but I'm bringing up foliars for two reasons. One is, well, when I started gardening, I don't know, 15 years ago, foliars weren't, maybe it was just the community of gardeners I was running in. They weren't as much of a thing. It wasn't, you know, you, you might foliar a little kelp and liquid fish or something. Um, and I feel that foliars have gotten way more popular, which is probably a really good thing. But it made me think, like, is this what, what's going on here? And so I wanted to call attention to two things. The first is economic. So every grower and in the cannabis industry that the price has remained that which, you know, you can justify if you can get more yield from a foliar, it's, you can justify it. But um, I also work with a lot of other growers, veggie crops and fruit crops. And it takes a lot of time, a lot of labor, um, a lot of equipment. I work with a lot of people at scale. So, you know, a five acre foliar isn't, isn't a, a small task. And um, so to me, every action a grower takes should justify itself economically. So I guess the first thing I was just mentioning is like, is it worth it? Like, how do you know that your foliars are truly working? And to me, I love split testing, taking half your room, foliar applying, taking the other half, not foliar applying and just seeing the difference and seeing if it pays for itself, because that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of time, um, doing foliars. The second thing I already mentioned, which is how do you know a foliar is working? I think that sap testing is the worst way because I think that the it's, you, you, it's, it's impossible to know if, if they're getting into the plant or not. And then the final thing is a lot of these substances, the, the molecular size of them is too large to actually make it through the stomata. And, um, I've heard a lot of sort of what I would call BS, or at least things that don't align with the first principles of plant physiology, which is like, it's, you know, it's so charged, it goes right through the cell wall. And I, I just don't buy a lot of those product claims. And so to me, if you're fully applying a large molecular substance, it, it may not be actually making it into the plant. So what's, what's interesting to me though, is like on the flips. So those are my, those are my like things I want people to start thinking yeah. about um, on this, on the flip side, I truly believe that a targeted foliar application is an incredible tool. And I also yeah. think that foliars in general do something to keep the RPMs high, the photosynthetic RPMs just revving. So I'm not anti-foliars. I don't want to say like, don't foliar. I just think people should focus on healthy, balanced, sufficient soil first, and then layer on foliars. Because without really, really good soil, um, it's, you know, you're just kind of fighting an uphill battle. Um, and there's agronomy firms that have been really influential to me, specifically AEA, um, works yeah. in broadening crops and John Kemp has been a, a good educator, but at the end of the day, I just wonder if it's too foliar heavy and if they're, I don't feel like they focus on the soil enough and they're, and so, um, that's sort of been a critique of mine for a while. And so I'm, I'm just throwing that kind of critique into the conversation just to help people start thinking about it. Nice. Nice. So, um, what is your preferred, um, 
let's say I've got, well, hey, well, we can focus on this. You've worked pretty heavily with Colta. Um, Colta has been running a big, massive, massive amount of raised beds. You know, we've got a four foot wide by a hundred, 120 foot long raised bed. Can you talk about how we're going to collect samples from that large of a raised bed and, and send in a sample and, and, and how would we be sampling a field with that many beds and that many different ecosystems? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I was just in a, a 25 acre orchard, so it, it gets cool. even, it gets even crazier there where I'm taking one tissue test from 25 acres. So that the 25 acres is too big. I'd say you should keep it at five acre blocks. But, um, in the case of Colta, you just want to pull you, what you're going for is an aggregate sample of that's, that's the most representative as possible. And it sounds crazy to take, let's say 50 or 60 leaves from the, a massive block of plants. Um, it just, it seems like too few, but you'd be surprised because, and I've done this over and over again, where I take a sample and I walk, I would walk down a road to answer your question, and I would pull the fully expanded new growth, one leaf from every fifth plant. And I would get, and I would zigzag and kind of be as random as possible, not cherry picking, not using my mental bias to think that's a really healthy leaf or that's a really unhealthy leaf. And just, mm. just find the new, the fully expanded new growth on maybe every fifth or every 10th plant create an aggregate sample, put it in a bag, ship it off. And it, it may not sound like enough, but if you do the same thing over again with different plants and different rows, the, the, the two tests are going to look super similar to the point where there are a few parts per million off in one direction or another, but the ultimate management decision is the same. And that's what matters. Oh, okay. So, so, and, and the same thing with soil testing. Um, but the, but the key is randomization, um, taking your own bias out of it and, and, and just getting, um, aggregate, the, the more, by the way, the more leaves or the more, more soil samples in an area, the better, that's what decreases the variability of the final test results. So the more leaves, the better across the entire block. Nice. Nice. Um, and specifically with, with Colta, I think you guys have done some really awesome cover cropping. Can you, can you talk about, uh, the cover cropping that they're doing? Yeah. You know, that was interesting. Um, they had a disease path. When I first started working with them, they had a, I think, fairly unidentified soil uh, disease. It was a fungal disease, it seemed. And um, so, and they, and they had some soils that were, they had, they had cropped once or twice and were pretty depleted from a nutrient standpoint. Um, and I, it just felt like the original mixes may not have had a whole lot of compost the CEC, which isn't the best measurement on a soilless media, but I still look at it. The CEC was low. So what's the CEC? Me, it's a, it's cation exchange capacity, which okay. in top soil is the soil's ability to hold nutrients on the clay colloid. But because there's no clay in, in soilless media, um, it's really about organic matter. It's about like true, uh, organic matter Decomposed. that would be like a really broken down compost, root exudates, et cetera. So, so it tells you something, it's kind of a summation of all the cations and, um, so I wanted to build the underlying organic matter in the soil and try to suppress the disease pathogen. Those were the two goals for the cover crop. So we went with a mustard, uh, mustards have compounds that are naturally very, uh, suppressive to disease. And so, um, it was a mustard and there were a few other species that I posted on the Instagram. I have to, I've helped a lot of guys with cover crops, so I can't remember the exact blend, but I think peas, some kind of legume for nitrogen fixation. 
um, the mustards for disease suppression, and then something else just to build biomass. And they incorporated those. They, uh, they tilled them in lightly, I think, into the first few inches um, with the, the minerals. And so far, their plants are doing great. Um, but their plants are huge. So I, today, as of today, I think they, they need a little more nutrition to finish out. Nice, nice. Um, so how often are you going out there and, and, and helping them out? So I, I used, to, used to go to farms all the time, um, but it, it quickly became unsustainable just in terms of the amount of visits and travel. So now I primarily just look at the data and look at pictures and help people sort of remotely. So I'm not more and more, I'm more specialized in terms of just helping guide nutrient management through data. And I leave it to the, to the growers to sort of fill in the remainder of the context. Because even if I'm out on a farm for a day, that's not enough context for me to understand what's actually happening. Um, a week later, for example, how they actually... So to me, like I'd have actually have to work at an operation for a month to see how... To, to get all of the context of, of how it works. So I'm trying to be... I'm trying to fill just a very specific role, which is guiding nutrient management. Awesome. Um... So I've been using Logan Labs throughout the years to do my saturated paste testing where I'm sending in a sample of my soil, sending in a sample of my water, they're combining them, um, and then I'm able to look at my available nutrients to the plant, just like if they were to recreate that situation as close as they could in, in the laboratory. Um, would you suggest that I, that I always continue to use Logan Labs because I started with them, or would it be okay to find something locally to me that maybe is more cost-effective, or would, would that not be a great solution? So that's a great question. I think changing labs is, I, I dread the day I have to change labs. And that's only because I have seen all my soil tests, probably 10,000 soil tests from Logan Labs. So I'm super calibrated to that lab's numbers, which is quite unfortunate actually, because um, it, it, sort of ties me to a lab. And so any grower who's gotten tests from a specific lab, it's really, it's really not advised to change labs if you're trying to compare data from year to year. Um, even the same test, the same testing protocols from two different labs will tend to lead to very different results. That's because the shake time is different. Um, the, the scoops they use, even the, the, um, containers that they use for testing, all those things matter. And so, um, it's, it's just, I've had to, I've changed SAP labs and it's like, you're starting from square one. Um, so that's the reason you don't want to switch labs is if you're trying to compare data from year to year, or you're trying to interpret it the same way you've interpreted, interpreted it before it's, 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 uh, not a good situation. Um, the second reason is because I, I deeply believe that you have to get a some kind of solubility test in soilless media. These standard soil tests that you that the mass most labs use across the country are developed for topsoil and are uh, not very well correlated to plant health or yield in a soilless media. So if you had a local lab that was cheaper that ran uh, taste test or some kind of light, very, very light acid extraction, then by all means, that's a good choice, but you'd have to calibrate to their target numbers over time. Great. And I saw the, was it you that posted a picture of this little tiny spoon for like yeah. sampling? Yeah. That's so a laboratory, a, right? 
Yeah. So, so Logan, that I was, at, I visited Logan. I, I went to Logan lab cause I wanted to understand like everything, just every detail of how they run tests, how they prepare samples, their equipment, their protocols, because it allows me to interpret it even better. Um, and pretty much across the board, soil labs use this little two milliliter scoop to test topsoil. And that, that is such a small quantity of soil. And it actually, believe it or not, it works very well in topsoil because topsoil is super homogenous. It's, it's very evenly mixed through the, through the ages. It's been mixed um, geologically. And so in an aggregate sample, they blend it. So they aggregate it even further and make it even more homogenous. Then they take a two milliliter scoop and it is highly consistent. However, soilless media, again, is different because if you think about your soilless media, the particle sizes are pretty big. Like, a, yeah. you know, like clay or sand. I mean, it's measured in microns. They're tiny, tiny little particles. If I go out into my backyard, I have piles of soilless media and, you know, in grassroots pots, actually. And, um, that, you know, I, there's a, I have pumice in there. That's two milliliters. So, and, and chunks of compost that are one milliliter. So a two milliliter scoop in a soilless media um, is not optimal. The pace test uses an entire cup. So I think there's a huge advantage there in terms of just a larger sample of soilless media um, being used. Now, bringing, calling attention to that two milliliter scoop on a standard soil test is still problematic in soilless media because you'd be shocked at how consistent it is. They make sure that they don't scoop a piece of aggregate. They scoop you know, they, they blend the soil down and then scoop two milliliters and, and the standard test is actually decent. So I don't mean to say it's not good data, but a cup is much better. Nice. Nice. Um, so kind of touching back into foliar sprays, um, I've taken my data and I've seen this sap test and I've seen like, crap, okay, I've got no, no copper, almost non-existent. I've got low boron and calcium, and I've learned that boron and calcium love to be applied together. Um, so what I've been leading with is um, uh, our concentrated biology, which is a liquid microbial product um, that starts from a compost, and then our microbial food to activate it and feed it, which is a humic acid, it's azomite, there's rock dust, obviously rock dust in there, um, calcium, there's a few other things, and it's very soluble. So I, I, I mix those parts together uh, with very clean water. I use, um, our, luckily our well water uh, comes in anywhere at, uh, from 22 ppms to like 46 ppms. I think the most I've ever seen it in the late summer is like maybe 60 ppms. So I, I use that water. I, I don't do anything else to it. It seems like it's pretty damn good to me. Um, and right. it's at like 6'2 a lot of the times. It's like great pH. So, um, you know, I'm starting with that water in a, in a five-gallon bucket. I'm adding in um, the microbial powdered foods first because it's got humic acids in it that are going to help carry, you know, the the, the boron and, and other stuff like that. And, um, uh, and we've got another product that has calcium. So I use the, the calcium and then I'll add uh, my 
my boron, which is a sulfate, which is obviously a non-organic thing, but I know I'm lacking it tremendously. So I'm going to use a non-organic substance to, you know, raise those levels back up where they need to be. Um, but anyways, going back to mixing that foliar spray, the last thing I'll do is add a surfactant of some kind. And a lot of times I'll just break off a little piece of aloe vera. I've got a lot of aloe vera plants on our property. So I'll break that up and I'll masticate it in my hands and get the thick parts out, but just really mix it up really well. Um, and put it in my stainless steel foliar case, uh, foliar, uh, uh, spray can, uh, that's got a, uh, pressure, um, indicator on the side. So I, 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 you know, pump it up and I try to get it to a pretty high pressure and, and try to get down to the lowest droplet size I possibly can. Um, and, uh, you know, lightly cover those plants, um, and try to mainly get the top side, some of the undersides, but you know, it's, it's, um, I'm feeding the plants. I'm not hitting them to, you know, get the bugs off of them. So I'm not really focusing on the bottom side of the leaf or anything like that. Um, How, how does that sound to you? Have I made any mistakes or am I going down the right path there? So yeah, generally that sounds like a great foliar program. Um, I love the surfactant piece specifically. I think aloe is a wonderful surfactant. Uh, I also personally feel that it probably has some biostimulant properties. The couple things that come to mind, the first is that the sulfate products, um, specifically boron like solubor or even borax, Um, But even copper sulfate, manganese sulfate, zinc sulfate, iron sulfate, they actually are allowed in organic production. So even though if if you've ever seen copper sulfate, it looks like a blue salt. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't look organic at all. But if a soil or a tissue test shows that you need any micronutrient, all the sulfates are allowed under the organic standard. Um, And like you said, it's kind of the only way to get them. Yeah. Uh, They just don't come in in sufficient quantities in kelp or rock dust or anything. And it's so cheap. I can't believe how cheap it is. You buy, if you yeah. bought a 50 pound bag of one of these things, you'd never buy it again for no matter what you do. Yeah. So yeah, you'd be passing it on to your kids and your grandkids in a small grill. Um, okay. So that's just one thing. The, the other thing is uh, I was, Oh, the stomata. So the yeah. stomata in dicots, which are monocots are grasses, dicots are all the other plants. So cannabis is a, is a dicot are primarily located on the underside of leaves. So I actually aim my foliar sprays up. I always have. Okay. I try to hit primarily the underside of the leaves. Um, stomata open and closed for primarily for gas exchange. So they're kind of like the breathing organ of the, the breathing cell of the plant. Um, and that's where they primarily uptake uh, nutrients from foliar sprays. So I like to aim up. Um, and then the final thing is what I would personally do and I, what I would advise if I was working with you is, is make that exact um, concentrated mix that you use in your foliar. And which sounds, by the way, it sounds like the, the biological game is definitely on point in terms of what you're using. Uh, and, but I would also put that in a water bottle and I'd send it off and have them run a paste test on it. Really? And then you can actually oh. see how much boron and how much calcium is available in that spray. Um, and if you need to adjust your formulation to crank it up or, or even down. Um, wow. so I, I have growers send paste tests on their liquid nutrient solutions and foliar sprays all the time. Um, so would you be sending in just the solution or would you, you're just sending them just the solution and tell them to do a paste test on it and they don't have any media to go with it. They're just testing that liquid. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, wow. Cause what they do with a paste test is they mix your soil with water 
and they, and then they, um, they stir it, you know, and they try to just extract all the nutrients with water. And then they put it through a Wattman filter paper and end up testing liquid anyway, all soil tests. They put it in a machine and they they're testing liquid, not solids. Okay. So okay. it's actually even easier for them because they just put the liquid right into the machine and see the PPMs of all the nutrients. Wow. Wow. Um, but I think that's great. I mean, the, the calcium, I would say any macronutrient that you really need, like if, if it's, I think that foliars are a good short-term solution to just get it, get it in the plant immediately and keep photosynthesis high. But ultimately I think that calcium should be coming through the soil, um, yeah. which gets back to my last point on, on foliars where it's like, when it comes to macronutrients, the vat and micronutrients, the vast majority of uptake comes into soil from the soil. So, um, foliars are a good, like band-aid, like let's get, let's, let's address it today, but then I'd probably be drenching gypsum or some other calcium source on the soil. Okay. So getting back to that, then, um, I guess I would need to do that saturated paste test on my nutrients to see how available things are. And that would probably kind of tell me how often I need to foliar spray that or how often I need to repeat that process. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of tells you probably not the frequency. I think the frequency should be driven primarily by plant response okay. and test results. So if you're like seeing, you know, if, if the plants, so for example, this happens, Epsom salt is the, the best example where there's such a visual 24 hour plant response that the plant needs magnesium. So I tell people just keep hitting it with the foliar until that, that visual response kind of, you know, tapers off. Um, but I would say that you're, you're looking at the nutrient solution just to, just to see how much calcium's in it. Cause you may, you may test it and see that there's 350 parts per million of potassium and only 50 parts per million of calcium. And to me, that wouldn't be a calcium foliar. Um, it would be kind of a more complete full nutrient potassium heavy foliar. So it's more just for more, it's, it's just for more information. Uh, alternatively, you might see that your product is contributing like eight parts per million of boron, which is a little high. Um, oh. So you just may want to adjust it in that direction. So it's more just for more precision. I mean, I, I used to say that I, I like precision organic nutrient management. Um, and that's why I like to test is I like to see how many actual PPMs are hitting your leaf. Um, and then when you add a, a sulfate to a foliar spray, uh, do you liquefy those sulfates ahead of time in a, in a solution or do you just add them right into the foliar spray? So I don't suggest using sulfates and foliars only because I, like I mentioned earlier, I think the particle size tends to be too big. Mm. The, like the, so to get into the leaf, I prefer some kind of uh, chelated nutrient. Um, and so traditional chelation is not organic and I think is um, not horrible, but if used repeatedly is toxic. So I, I don't ever recommend chelated uh, synthetically chelated products, but in organics, there's amino chelation. So, um, they use like, a amino acid, like derived from soybean meal. Um, and they, so I tend to recommend an amino chelated micronutrient instead of a micronutrient sulfate. Okay. So amino, and I would be looking that up specifically under every different trace element. It would just be mixed into that kind of chelated solution in a liquid form? Yeah. So like I, you know, usually I'll buy like a manganese, amino chelated manganese. I have a separate powder that's amino chelated iron. And so I can, I can pinpoint the exact nutrient I need and mix those together. They, they're, they're all tank compatible. 
So you can be like, I need boron and calcium. So you put an amino chelated calcium with an amino chelated boron in the same tank. Um, what sources are you going to purchase that kind of stuff? Is there one specific company or is it vast? We can shop pretty, pretty widely for this stuff. Unfortunately, there's not that many. I mean, the, there's probably like four brands I've come across. One is uh, Albion Metallosate and the other is Biomin. Um, Biomin, okay. I've heard you know, if, in, in small grows, and, and I'm pretty sure that they were, they are like two companies from the same group of people, essentially they split or whatever. So I think the products are fairly comparable. I tend to gravitate toward Albion, but another super, super effective amino chelated foliar would be something you make like from a ferment, like an eggshell KNF prep. Um, not, not a good <laughs> idea at scale. And like I said, like, you know, <laughs> good luck making the enough for like a 10 acre foliar, but if you're just a home grower, you know, eggshells and vinegar type of, I mean, look it up in the Jadon book or whatever you're, you're using. Yeah, that's I think a huge it's practice very right now. Okay. Yeah. I think it's a very effective foliar and that's, that's amino chelated. It's just homemade. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, there's so many people that are diving so deep into KNF stuff right now. I feel like that's just such a, a vast network of knowledge there. And there's some great people out there in our industry that are educating people on that stuff. So that's awesome. I love whenever you can use something from another source for cheaper or make it yourself. I mean, that's that's just definitely what it's all about in cultivation. Yeah. And it, I unfortunately, I haven't dove into it because again, at scale, it's just like, it's not the right approach. But um it's absolutely gives you more power and more control to be able to make your own inputs because like sap testing, which is a black box, we don't know how they're extracting the sap. Same thing with these amino chelated products. How are they making them? What are they derived from? Where are they coming from? Is the, are the soybeans GMO? Like it's just, there's, there's a million, there's more questions than answers. Um, but when you do it yourself, you're like, yeah, I know, you know, exactly how this was made. And to me, that's a very, uh, it, it, it gets kind of beyond like plant health and gets more into like the purpose of why we're doing this. So to me, there's like a really special connection with, with gardening and farming when, when we have those types of inputs, um, it, it makes it sort of more, it makes it a little deeper and more fulfilling. Great. So when you go into a, a cannabis grow, um, and you see it's pretty much monocropped, um, what were the first kind of plants that you would like to add into their diversity that you want to bring into that, that you would suggest? You know, this may sound like anathema, uh, but in an indoor environment, I like, I like just cannabis. I don't like, to okay. see anything else. yeah, okay. to be honest, I like, I like a clean, um, and you know, again, it's like, it goes against so many of my ecological principles, but that's what I, for production, for economic reasons and for production, I want a monocrop. Um, I, I work with a guy a little bit named Steve, uh, who is totally different in that way. He has like multi-species cover crops and I think that can work, but he's, he's on, you know, like his 40th run and he's really dialed it in. So it's a cool thing, but I think for the average grower, I think it should be totally one species. Now outdoors is a hundred percent different. Um, I would want well, let's see. It kind of depends on the scale and the setup and everything. Um, ground, like a living ground cover doesn't matter as much to me. And people run into trouble with that, um, especially if they're using grasses as like a cover crop. They're just so competitive. Even like a red clover can be so competitive to the yeah. actual cannabis that I actually like border crops. So I like um, to see flowers and just a diverse sort of ecosystem around the grow. I think that is, is really important. 
Um, I sometimes the healthiest operations I've ever seen are the ones tucked away, kind of the more uh, black market operations in the forest. And so they're surrounded by this native apex ecosystem that's like already thriving. To me, that's that's ideal. Um, which you know, if you if if you don't have that option, you don't have that option. Um, and I wouldn't say buy a piece of forest and cut half of it no. down to start a, a cannabis operation. I just think that native uh, buffer strips and pollinator uh, gardens and um, yeah, just, just trying to plant trees. I mean, if you plant fruit trees, I think just general diversity around the operation is the name of the game more than anything. Um, and then otherwise, I think it's kind of pest specific. So if you're, if you're grappling with a, a specific pest, I, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I have charts on like different uh, companion species that I might look up, but otherwise I would just go for diversity. Great. Um, when you, um, accompany somebody, this is probably very common on social media more than anything, and they're having problems or having issues. I'm guessing the first kind of data that you're hoping to get from them is to get them to do some sort of a soil test, correct? Yeah, usually. I mean, there are certain, I'm getting better at physical diagnosis of, of, uh, symptoms, but it, it's, it should be, you'd, you'd think physical diagnosis would be so easy, but it's, it's, it, oh, they always show up a little different depending on the cultivar and the timing, how far in the flower they are. And the just, so I think beyond just making guesses by far, the, the best thing is a tissue test and a soil test simultaneously. So like, if you're seeing an issue, you know, full soil test, tissue test is the baseline. Um, and then from there, I think about VPD, um, you know, the first thing I have people do is before, you know, I say, take the soil pH immediately, like before you even send out a sample, take the soil pH and then pull your samples. Um, because the soil pH is, you know, instantaneous, the samples are going to take probably five days to tell you're getting your tissue test. If you include the USPS shipping, that takes forever. Um, and soil tests might take a week. So I say, take those samples. And then based on the physical symptoms, you can make a few guesses and you can do foliars to try to diagnose. So for example, if there's like chlorosis between the veins of the leaf and it, and it's kind of splotchy, I say, hit it with Epsom salt at one tablespoon per gallon. And if the plants respond dramatically in 24 hours, you know, you have a magnesium deficiency. Um, you can do the same little test with each individual nutrient based on the symptoms. So usually I'll look at a symptom and I'll say that I feel like that's iron and so, or, or, you know, manganese or something. So it's like, hit it with iron, wait three days, see if it responds. And so as you're waiting for the test results, you can do little experiments in your operation. Nice. And be further dialing it in. That's great. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you think is, and it's great that you work with so many different crops and obviously probably dramatically more and more per day cannabis growers in, in your system are, are adding to that. Um, what do you think is cannabis growers biggest issue they give themselves or create oh, themselves? That's, that's an exceptional question. <sighs> um, I think there's often a mindset of more is better. Um, or more specifically, maybe, maybe a little different in flavor is 
if you have a deficiency, you should just add more of that nutrient. But oftentimes deficiencies are a result of an excess of another nutrient or um, they're a result of a vapor pressure deficit or irrigation technique or even pot size. You know, a lot of nutrients are uptaken. Like the roots have to literally, your root volume has to be big enough to hit the nutrients. So there's, so there's other variables to nutrient management beyond just the amount of nutrient that you're applying. And so a, a little bit more of like a holistic view of nutrients, I think would benefit growers well. Um, the other thing, let's see. I personally think that organic cultivation, and this is, this is why I do what I do, it, it, it lacks precision. So I do appreciate and, and nod to the, the um, hydro and salt growers who are using hyper-precision and crop steering techniques. And I just think that we can, we can have more precision in organic management. It's harder, but at the end of the day, you can create this wonderful product that's super biological. It's organically grown. Um, if there's ever, you know, an organic standard, consumers will definitely prefer that. And so we can add precision with testing into the, into the mix and use organic products. And that's kind of what I, what I focus on. Um, and the final thing, and this is just kind of a hypothesis of mine is I think organic growers tend to go too light on phosphorus in, um, because it, it's, it's challenging. There's not that many liquid organic phosphorus products, um, the solubility of the dry products is fairly low. And I'll also add that I don't want anyone to, to misinterpret this and just go put down a bunch of phosphorus because um, you can create a lot of issues, including a lot of environmental problems that we're all trying to solve. Um, phosphorus in, in ecosystems is one of the, is one of the worst things ever. Um, so yeah, it, it, it has to be used very consciously, but I think that we we often go a little light on FOSS. I see that quite frequently. Um, I don't know. I'll have to keep thinking about that question. It's such a good one. Great. Well, you, maybe you can do a post on it. <laughs> I'd, love yeah, see, yeah. I'd love to see that on social media. Um, yeah. just to talk about phosphorus, I've been using Pacific Grow CFOS. Yeah. I love it. That's what I recommend. Oh, okay. Good, good. So I've been using, I've noticed it just, it just makes my nutrient solutions crash in pH when I'm yeah, well, adding it. That's a great point. You got to watch out because. Does that mean I'm uh, adding too much? Well, not necessarily. They use that the 7% phosphorus, it's 171 or 170, yeah. um, is from phosphoric acid. So they, well, it's from the fish, but it's also stabilized with phosphoric acid. Most liquid fish is. Yeah. Their oceanic hydrolysate product is stabilized with sulfuric acid, which is actually really rare. So that, that if you think about like the most powerful pH down is phosphoric acid. So it's oh. kind of a, it's kind of a, a pH down in effect. So I recommend it fed very, very frequently at very low concentration. So you won't see that crazy pH, um, decrease in your water. Okay. So you're talking like 30 milliliters a gallon, 10 milliliters a gallon. Yeah. Like 10 would be, I'm thinking more like it depends. It's totally depends, but more like three, five, something like that. Oh, wow. Okay. So I've been dramatically overusing it. the, The assumption here though, is that your phosphorus in your soil is good. Is that let's say 1500 or 2000 pounds of phosphate per acre on the standard test. So if, if you're already, if you're already running like high levels of phosphorus, 
it's just a, it's just a kiss, you know, it's just like, just, just a spoon a few, feeding spoon. Yeah, feeding. yeah. 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 But if, but like, I was just looking at some tissue and soil tests earlier, they both were, I, I love when tissue and soil line up perfectly. And it's like, both of them were like, you need phosphorus. And at that point I was recommending, I think 20 mils per gallon. Um, and just, and just repeated every single irrigation because that grower needed phosphorus. Um, but yeah, you might just be applying a lot and it's just a lot of phosphoric acid. Now, the other thing is, is it depends on your water, right? Cause if your al- if the alkalinity of your water is really high, it's not going to drop the, the pH as quickly. But if you have really clean water, like you're saying with only a few PPMs total, um, it's going to drop it like a rock really, really fast. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, but I'm using too much of it now that I think about it, like in going back, um, I've been using it mainly in my root drenches. I do like just a once a week, uh, root drench with my biology products and microbe foods and, and, you know, whatever additives, obviously, cause now I'm in bloom and hitting them with the, the phosphorus. Um, uh, I've done one or two foliar sprays, obviously, cause just help transitioning that bloom, um, aspect. It could, no way it couldn't be you know, super helpful to the plant, especially with all those oils and, and Lord, that is the stinkiest stuff I've ever smelt, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of products in organic production, the, the stinkier, the better. I mean, I'm, I just spread uh composted poultry manure on my, at my farm. And it's like, it beats, it beats a liquid fish for sure. It's horrible. Crazy, crazy. Can you speak about uh, your personal farm and what you got going on there? Yeah. So, um, I've pulled back on my personal cannabis growing cause I don't like to process it. I'm too busy to like properly, you know, uh, process it and cure it. And there's no way I hate trimming. I just like, don't, oh, gosh. So I've, don't even mention that on this podcast. We don't talk about yeah, it. So, so I've scaled back. And so right now I'm, you know, I've always been a veggie grower. I've always been a passionate gardener. So we have, my wife and I have a, a huge vegetable garden. That's just like probably the most prolific garden I've ever had. You have massive, watermelon and just uh, amazing veggies. And then I'm also putting in an orchard. So I'm, I'm, uh, putting in a three acre block of peaches and another one acre of diversified kind of food forest style, um, experimental fruit crops, a lot of sweet cherries. I'm planting some nut crops and for my area, nuts don't really produce. So I'm just trying to push the limits on pine nuts and some other interesting species. Um, but I'm really, I'm really into perennial agroecosystems. I believe that the most sustainable way to to produce food for the, into the future is in perennial systems. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be growing annuals because I actually think there's this wonderful opportunity to grow annuals in, in an orchard. So I'm making my alleys really wide between my trees. Okay. So I'm planting peach trees and then I'm going to alley crop in between the peach trees. Um, annuals, I'm going to run chicken. So there's a, there's a system um, developed primarily by Joel Salatin, really cool, like, mm. you know, old kind of pioneering, regenerative farmer who recently has kind of been canceled, um, for his social stuff, but he has these chicken tractors and you can move these chickens through the orchard. So I'm going to be grazing, I'm going to be grazing, uh, alley cropping, but primarily like growing, you know, peaches, uh, which to me is like a very, it's a very special crop. It was bred from almonds, um, or it was developed from almonds. So like peaches don't really exist in nature. Uh, humans have bred them from an almond, kind of like humans have bred a poodle from a wolf. So there, it's just this interesting species that, I mean, first it's my favorite fruit. It's, it's a very sensitive, um, and just the genetic history to me is very fascinating. 
That's, and at the uh, end of the day, I'm farming, standing up in the shade, not having to till my soil. Beautiful, beautiful. I've always wanted to crack open the nut that's in the middle of a peach because I absolutely love peaches too. Um, obviously, that's just a seed, right? Yeah, So, but, but if you think about it, it looks like an almond, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. Essentially, and this is, I mean, I'm repeating literally verbatim what I heard from a UC Davis geneticist. Um, so I'm assuming he's right, but they, we took, humans took almonds and we, we bred them for the endocarp to just thicken. So essentially it's like an almond with a really thick, juicy skin that we bred and that's a peach. Mm. And that's why the pit looks like an almond. Yeah, that's so interesting. And the peach is almost like a protective shell because the last couple of peaches I've eaten, there's just such a big gap on the inside in between the the nut and the peach. It just huh. seemed like it was like, I don't know if it's a nutrient deficiency, but it, it was a very tasty white peach. Um, but just a nice little air gap in between, I don't know if it's just ripened or, or how it was. It and just seemed like I was like, the peach is protecting this thing in the center. You know, it's like... Yeah, well, it's definitely doing that, but I don't think the air gap is desirable. I'm not sure what that is though. I mean, lack of density, could, obviously. Yeah. It could be the, it could be the variety. I mean, yeah. like, like, I mean, what, like cannabis, I mean, where you just, the cultivar is very so widely. That's actually the biggest challenge in my business in my consulting is like just cultivar differences are just so dramatic. Oh yeah. And every place is like, yeah, we're going to start out with a uh, 60 or 80 strains and then maybe we'll land on 20 or 30 and, and just, you know, we'll figure out what works best with us. And it's like, I'd rather start with one and then get yeah. good at that one and build out from there. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you could, I, I would, I would much rather have four winners that very trustworthy people have made money on for a long time. And then I know <laughs> dispensaries are going to buy, I would, I would have four and I, but you know, everyone's passionate about a different angle in agriculture. And if I was a genetics guy and I was really passionate about different cultivars and, and I had been, you know, collecting strains and I, I, it might be different. I might be into that element, but I'm more into, you know, soil nutrition production. And so to me, I just want the best, I just want the winning four varieties. And I just, and then the beauty of doing fewer to your point um, is you can optimize the hell out of the few that you know are good and you want to have in your collection for 30 years, meaning you can just sap test and tissue test and just really hone in on the nutrient requirements and the VPD requirements and all of the, because they're all going to be optimized at these different levels. So I'm coaching people and helping people get in this range where the vast majority of cultivars will thrive, but there's so much more optimization to be had if you focus on individuals. Definitely. Dramatically. So dramatically. Um, I had something a second ago that I thought was going to be really good. A good question there. Um, I would say um, for you, is there anything in this podcast here that we haven't spoke about yet that you were kind of hoping to to key into today? You know, not really. Um, I'm always... I, my big push lately, there's a hundred and some people signed up for my online course. They've all, they're all super thrilled. Um, I haven't really been pushing it lately, but if, if anyone, if any of your listeners are listening to this and liking the content and liking the information, I go way, way, way deeper in this course that I just launched. Um, and I'm adding to it constantly. So I'm adding a, a topsoil, um, module. So there's a bunch of modules. One goes through all the organic products, both dry and liquid, uh, in the toolbox for growers. So I just go through alfalfa meal, blood meal. I go through every one in depth. I then talk about how to test your soil and amend soil and build the optimal 
uh, soilless media. And I talk about mid-season fertility, so how to tissue test, how to feed, et cetera. And then the final is just advanced techniques and troubleshooting. Um, and I'm going to add another module, which is about how to manage topsoil, because I work with guys who are growing, you know, an acre or two acres. Uh, I don't know how legally, but I don't, I don't care. Yeah. I don't ask questions. And it, to me, that type of management is really, really fascinating. And I really love cannabis cultivation at scale. So, um, that module is going to be added. So I guess my point is if, if your listeners are interested, I'd love to, uh, have them on board the online course and I can give more information at some point. Great. Great. That's exciting. Um, what is the, the, the cost of the course that you have going on there? It's $1,500. Okay. Um, sounds like a big ticket item. And I, I guess my, most of the guys in it are easily paying for the course within one season with just growing an extra pound of um, a flower. And a lot of them have paid for it many times over. Um, I'll also just say that if it's, it's a really good class, so it's an ex- excellent class for commercial growers and professional growers who are, who are making money growing. Um, but it's also a really good class for someone who's just extremely passionate about cannabis cultivation and just wants to be just totally level up. Um, it, it, it's, it's a big price tag for the home grower with four plants. I understand. Um, but that's just kind of how I had to price it to make it worthwhile. Yes, definitely. Um, I thought of that question I was thinking about earlier, uh, before I thought about that, that closing kind of thing I want to do, but, um, we all know cannabis growers are synonymous and very, excuse me, famous for overwatering. Um, you know, especially I've talked to so many consultants and it's just like, man, you know, the biggest thing is people just overwatering too much. Can you give us some tips on irrigation and, and how to dial that in for your specific situation? Yeah. You know, I, I'm a huge fan. I I think the best way to think about it, I think more about dry back. So, um, and I think about, I think I also break it down into, um, veg versus flower. So I think that you want more frequent irrigation in veg and not these massive drenching events. Um, so small dry back time, uh, more frequent irrigation, kind of the blue mat style, keep it consistently moist, the soil hydration, good, um, not flooding, not like pushing out all the oxygen from the soil, but more like I'd grow a tomato, but then in flower, there's a crop steering technique where you increase the, you, you have larger dryback times. So, um, and so, you know, you're, you're treating it more like a, just, just more of an arid plant. I, I really think that larger dryback times really stimulate the reproductive mode of the plant. So, and I've made this mistake a lot personally, I'll admit throughout the years is just overwatering. And I just, the stretch just keeps going. And, um, yeah, I think you really want to not light is not the only thing you're communicating to that plant to tra- to transition into flower. Yeah. I think there are a the growers, I think there's a huge opportunity for growers to think about, um, EC, you know, pushing the EC higher, larger drybacks, more, less frequent irrigation, slightly lower temps, um, slightly lower relative humidity, and, uh, maybe a little higher VPD. Those aren't going to like cause flowering or cause revegging, but they're, I think that they're subtle yet powerful, um, 
techniques to, to tell the plant to, to sort of switch. Um, otherwise, when it comes to watering, the, the best tip ever is you just feel your soil every day. Like for, you know, every day you're growing cannabis, you should feel your soil. And after a year, after a month, you'll understand what the right moisture is by feel. And nothing beats that. Um, tensiometers are great. Soil moisture sensors are great. I'm really into like automated solenoids that turn on your irrigation at the exact, you know, optimization of, of soil pore space, volumetric water and, and water tension and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, just nothing beats a, a, a field test. Yeah. Getting it out there and going back to your own personal garden there. Um, how often do you feed your veggie plants or, or do you even feed your veggie plants? Is it just planning on um, amending the soil and preloading it in there? So my, my personal technique, which I don't think is the best technique to grow cannabis. I do it because I'm busy and I, I'm not a commercial professional grower. So I'm trying to minimize my labor input to maximize, you know, to labor input for yield. Like, yeah. and that means I'm pretty much going water only. I, I, it depends on the year and it depends on the garden I'm growing in. But this year, I, I would say I slightly over amended the soil. Um, I was planning on growing a seed plant, which I thought was going to get enormous. And I was just going to go old school, like, you know, amend a huge amount of soil, give it tons of root volume, grow it in the, in the garden, let it get 10 feet tall. But it was a clone that was struggling when I bought it. And it's still only like, uh, I don't know, four or five feet tall. And it's, it's, uh, it's just not taking up the amount of nutrients I thought. So anyway, I over amended the soil, so I'm going water only, but in years past, what I would usually do is, is, uh, just kind of spoon feed it liquid amino acids for nitrogen. I amend the soil. I take a soil test. I amend the soil. I get all the micros, right. I get all the cations, right. I don't overwater to leach it out. And then I just spoon feed it nitrogen. And then right around flower, I hit it with um, it depends, but usually I, I push the phosphorus a little harder and I tend to have a high potassium compost that I'll top dress right around transition. Um, and that kind of brings it home. So it's very like rudimentary old school, but I spend a lot more time with the girls I work with on, on precision management, fertigation and customizing the nutrient plans. Um, what I have done in my personal gardens is a lot of experimentation so I'll do a lot of split tests. I'll do microbial applications of this row of three plants, but not to the, the row next to it. Um, Which I think yeah, is impossible I mean, my, for normal cannabis growers to do. We don't ever, they just hit everything with everything. It's so yeah, hard for anybody to break up anything and do any sort of a test. It's, I know, I know. But it's, it's the biggest opportunity to really, I mean, to me, like one to two split tests a year. And over, and, and by year 20, you'll know exactly what works and what doesn't work. And you'll just, you won't be wasting the end. But the person, the guy who's feeding everything all the time never will never that. actually know what's working. And <laughs> never really cal- have a true ROI too, or a calculable right, right. ROI. Is it, is it the, you know, aloe? Is it the coconut water? Is it the kelp? Is it like, what, like, what is actually working and what's not? And the only way to, to know is to do a proper split test. Yeah. Um, I personally have, um, 
dramatically backed off of IPM as far as adding beneficial bugs and as far as just doing, I think the, the cannabis culture itself has this like, oh, I'm going to do my weekly foliar spray of a pesticide or some sort of like a Dr. Zymes or so many different products out there to just just hit the plant with just as a preventative to prevent those things from happening. Me now, I've just found it, like you said, of just the more of, you know, letting things happen themselves and nature take its course in a certain sense. And and I've completely backed off of that stuff and just seen a tremendous, you know, plant response of just getting back to organics. And and is that probably what you suggest too? Is Am I going in the right direction with that? Yeah, I mean, my personal experience is if you have a small outdoor garden, you don't need to spray unless you have an issue. Um, Good. If, I wanted you know, to hear that. If you get mites, like, yeah, it's... Yeah. You, you should probably get beneficials in immediately and, like, you know, the next season definitely because the... And you might want to start rotating. But again, that's if you have an issue. I... I'm lucky. I'm like you. I've just, I, with outdoor crops, they're really self-cleaning compared to a lot of other things I've seen. Indoor, um, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm not qualified enough to speak on this, but I would be a little bit more on it Yeah. in an indoor environment. Not to say I'd be doing IPA sprays just all the time, no matter what. I think that's a little overboard. Um, but again, it kind of depends. Like if you've, if you lose a crop because you're not on your IPM and you're in a big commercial setting, it's sucks. Oh yeah. Um, it could be a career ender. Right. Right. So I understand the preventative approach there, but I think to your point, yeah. And kind of like foliars, like, I think it's just good to ask the question, like, is this needed? You know, is this input of time, energy, resources, material, money needed right now? Do the plants need it? Cause if the plants don't need it, then they will do better without it. And so again, um, more is not always better. And that's not only with nutrition, but with, with these spray, the IPM sprays as well. Great. Great. Well, I think we've touched on some absolutely amazing stuff and wonderful technical issues. And we bounced back from that and you came back on there amazing and, and got that, that question answered for me. And, um, I think I've, I've, I've learned a lot. I'm going to have to go back and, and listen to this episode again, just to, just to learn more. Um, is there anything else you wanted, you want to close on or, or talk about here today? Not at all. If anything comes up, um, feel free to pull me on again, but I've just, I've loved the conversation and I appreciate you bringing me on. Great, great. Well, everybody, make sure you go back and rewind the first part of this where we talk about all the different ways that you can access the information from the Soil Doctor, his Instagram, his website, um, get on there and, and get his information from him because I think it's so fascinating and he's out there in real time too and real crops behind him and real things happening and, and, and data there. So thank you for what you do. Thank you so much for open sourcing all of your information and, and not holding anything back. I really appreciate your true, honest opinion about every, every question I asked, asked of you today. Thanks Tyler. Thank you. You have a good one. <laughs>